Hebrews chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. If you did not bring a Bible, there's one provided for you in the pew rack. If you don't want to use that, I would just invite you to, to find it on your phone because you're going to need to be looking at the Scripture today as I talk about it. It really is. The most important thing here is going to be what you read even more than what you hear. So if you found Hebrews chapter 6, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6 goes from verse 13 to verse 20. At the end of verse 20, there you see the mention of Melchizedek. And many of you are saying, when are you going to preach about Melchizedek? Not today. <laughs> it really picks up in chapter 7. So we'll just, next week, we'll reach back, get a little bit of chapter 6, pull it forward, and go forward with uh, Melchizedek in chapter 7. So next Sunday, we'll get to that. Let me call your attention to verse 13. And we'll read down to verse 20. We pick it up in the middle of a thought. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's start reading that in verse 13. <clears throat> this is what the Bible says. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to you, our triune God. We ask that the same Holy Spirit that gave us this infallible Bible, we pray that the Holy Spirit that gave us the Bible would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. We need your help. And so, Lord, speak to us clearly from your word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You may be seated. In the 14th century, the Italian poet named Dante Alighieri, you probably know his poem. Dante Alighieri wrote a poem called The Inferno. In Dante's Inferno, when he pictured the gates of hell, what he had written across the top of the gates of hell was the phrase, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Why did he write that? Because he knew that losing hope is Satan's greatest wish for mankind and his greatest tool for the downfall of men and women. For your downfall. 
Hope is gone. When hope is gone, energy is lost, motivation is robbed. When hope is gone, the future seems as black as night and as cold as ice. Look, you felt that there are people in here, there are people sitting in this room right now who have felt the bottomless despair of having hope gone. You know what it's like to have this irrecoverable hurt. You know what it feels like to have this unreconcilable frustration. <laughs> or what it's like just to want to just flat give up. Evidently, the people, evidently, this little church is receiving this letter for the very first time. Evidently, these people were facing some of the same things. So the preacher, just to give us context, if you're a guest today, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. In chapter 5, about middle way through, a warning starts. It becomes the hardest warning in the whole Bible. In chapter 6, after that hard warning, the preacher backed up a little bit and he offers some encouragement. And now, after that encouragement, the preacher pauses in his discourse and he reaches over into the Old Testament and he pulls out an example from the Old Testament, a man named Abraham. And he pulls up Abraham. He points to Abraham to convince his people that you can trust God. That he is going to come through for you. That you can never Give up hope. Now, sometimes, I'll be honest, sometimes I feel like we live in a hopeless world. I feel like that until Sunday comes. Sunday comes and I can come to church and I can sit down here on the front pew and sing the songs of Zion. I don't know why anybody would ever skip church. I don't know why you would ever, if you're a Christian, not come to church after the week you've had. Come here and sing to the Lord and have the love of brothers and sisters in Jesus. Stand under some real authority, the Bible. Look to the promises of God that are fulfilled in Christ. And when that happens, I am reminded that my hope lies in Jesus. My hope lies in his perfect life, not my righteousness, but his. In his death on the cross, God's judgment, not on my life, but on Jesus in my place. His victorious resurrection and his ascension and lordship over all creation. I'm reminded, this gospel reminds me that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Amen. Now this passage is naughty. It's tangled up. It's wordy when you read it. It's hard to follow. But if you'll, if you'll do a little mental work, you just keep looking at it. If you'll hang in there today, I think your heart and soul will be strengthened to face another week, to face this hard world, and to do so with a rock-solid hope. You see, real hope, real hope gives strength to our weary souls. Let me show you where I get all this. Let's go right into the passage. 
Now, I'm going to take a big chunk of it, verse 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. From verse 13 to 17, I want you to see Christ. We're going to look at Christ through all of this. But in verse 13 to 17, you'll see that Christ is, He is our trustworthy hope. Now, the first five verses right here from verse 13 to 17, they are the hardest to untangle. I'll tell you what let's do. Let's just go through them slowly. I'm going to read them and give just some comment as we go. So we're giving some running commentary as I go through it, and then we'll come back and see if we can't make some application. Join me there, verse 13 and 14. The preacher is telling his congregation to imitate Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by whom he could swear, he swore by himself. So God says, I I put my character on the line to keep this promise I'm going to make to you. And then in verse 14, say, surely, here's the promise, I will bless you, I will multiply you. Now this preacher right here, he really likes Abraham. He mentions Abraham 10 times in the letter of Hebrews. Only Mark and only John and Luke mention Abraham more than the writer of Hebrews. And here in verse 13 and 14, he takes us back to a very specific story in Abraham's life. So if you followed the life of Abraham, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham. And in Genesis 22, the most cataclysmic thing to ever happen to Abraham happens. God calls to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, the one you love, sacrifice him. This is, the, this is the child Isaac. This is the first spark of a fulfilled promise. And Abraham obediently walks with Isaac with the knife and the fire. Even Isaac sees it. I see the fire and the knife. Father, where is the burnt offering? It's called the binding of Isaac. And Abraham binds Isaac and puts him on the wood to offer him up as an offering. And the tension builds in Genesis 22. With the knife in his hand, he raises his hand up to kill his son. And an angel of the Lord calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And the angel stops him and calls his eyes to a ram caught in the thicket that will be a substitute for Isaac, which points directly to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who died in our place. And the preacher says, now just remember, this is, he quotes right here in verse 14, that is a direct quote from Genesis 22, verse 17, when God made the promise to Abraham. So what's he doing in verse 13 and 14? He's reminding his people as he reminds us that God's good promises are immutable, they are inviolable, they are unchangeable because God swears on his holy character. See what he says, verse 13, 14? Here's the promise, here's the oath, and I swear on myself on my own holiness. There is none greater than God. God swears on himself. And the point is, that God has given us truth. We have been given unchangeable, immutable truth. 
that we don't have opinions or judgment calls. What we have is truth. It's why we do expositional preaching. It's why we recommend and try to encourage you to be in the Bible because we are living in a culture that's in this, this moral down spiral and is devolving with such rapidity that we can't keep up. And it, I mean, it looks like we have changed and gotten harder and more strict. But the truth of the matter is we haven't changed a bit. We've been holding on to the same truth. It's the world that's moved past you. And in the face of cultural pressure, there are people sitting in this room right now that are going to have to make... You're going to end up making a decision to either hold on to biblical convictions and lose your career or let go of these convictions to keep a job. There, there are people sitting here that are getting ready to have to face that. Sometimes the problem is even, up, it's, it's even closer in. Sometimes it's not a job at all. Sometimes it's, it's, it's family. Fam, there's no pain like family pain. When you're having to make decisions as a, as, a, as a parent or maybe even as an adult child about your parents, you're having to make decisions. You're holding on to certain biblical convictions about how you believe and understand what does the Bible say about sexuality. And the culture has shifted to such a degree that those attitudes have changed. And what has not changed is what God's Word said. And you're standing there on God's Word. And the promise is, I mean, what the Bible's saying is, the truth of what God has said is something we must trust more than our emotions. Some of us are being, you're being forced to trust either your affection, love is a strong emotion, affection or the truth of the Bible. But the, but the, but the promised truths of the Bible, they are promised upon, verse 13, 14, God's character. Not our opinions and judgments. So what do we do? By grace, we, we hold on to those. By grace, we endure in those. And in verse, verse 15, the preacher once again points to Abraham as our example. Notice what it says in verse 15. And thus Abraham, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Here's the example. He says, patient wait. Patiently wait. I mean, you, when you read Abraham's story, go back and read it sometime. You read his story, you find out that Abraham waited years and years and years and years until his wife got pregnant and it felt as if the promise of all those generations was going to happen. And truthfully, he never really did actually see the complete fulfillment of all God would do. And verse 16 and 17 Dial in hard right here. 16 and 17 tells us why, why didn't God just tell Abraham he was going to give him a generation? Why did he promise and then make an oath and then guarantee it? Go back with me. Read verse 16 and 17 together. <clears throat> People swear by something greater than themselves. You understand this if you've been to court, you've seen it on television, put your hand on the Bible, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And you do that, what you're doing is you're swearing on an authority that's higher than yourself. So 
People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to... Wait, slow down. What does he desire to do? When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, his desire was to convince us. This is written down to convince you. He wants to convince the heirs of the promise. He wants to, to give you a reason to believe. What he's doing even now is strengthening your faith to, to gain your trust, to give you a better resolve. He's doing this because we live in a fallen world and this fallen world makes you doubt. Everything about it makes us doubt. Go to work. You go to work and you get a fair shake in it. You just wonder, is there any justice? You have friends that are friends of your face and behind your back or something different. And you wonder. You don't feel like you can even have friends. You, you, you have a family and in that family it feels as if there's nothing but turmoil or pain. Goodness, the pain makes you doubt. You come to church where all the nice people are supposed to be. You get here, you find out they ain't all nice. Makes you doubt. You doubt me? Look, go on Facebook and find out. You, 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 you have kids and you raise them up and they become adults and you, I mean, you just wonder what is God's entered into a marriage and made a promise to God and a promise to someone else. And that person made a vow to you, and that vow has been absolutely broken. It makes you doubt. Or singleness, you single, living single, and the things that people say to single people. And you just doubt. So many things in this life, this world, cause us to doubt. God knows that, and he puts this before us. Now dial into verse 17 with me. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God desiring. Why did he guarantee it with an oath? Why did he do that? Because he desired to more convincingly prove it to you, an heir of the promise. That's, that's me and you. Heirs of the promise, that's me and you. We are the heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. Don't cut off the Old Testament and think it doesn't apply. We are the heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. This is exactly what Paul said to the church at Galatia. Galatians chapter uh, 3, verse 13 and 14. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus died on the cross for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who, hanged, who is hanged on a tree. So that Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's right here, in Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. By the way, this is how Jews and Gentiles this is the answer to racism, is the, is the gospel. How Jews and Gentiles come together is the gospel. So that the blessing of Abraham might come to Gentiles so that we might 
we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is he saying? At the cross of Jesus, all the sworn promises given to Abraham have now been given to us in Christ. Look, what you can trust is Christ. Not your righteousness, but his perfect life lived on your behalf. Not you fearing judgment, the judgment of God, but the judgment of God taken by Jesus at the cross on your behalf. Not your fear of death. No, Jesus being raised from the dead. Look, I preached a funeral yesterday. I preached a funeral Friday. It's so good to be here on church Sunday to preach once again about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Raised from the dead so that you can have hope. What I mean is, all of your disappointments, all of your disappointments, all of your frustrations, all of your hurts, all of your letdowns, all of your, all of your breakups, everything that you've been through that was so painful for you has been nothing more but than a servant. It is a, is a handmaid taking you by the hand and leading you gently here, painfully sometimes, for you to see the sufficiency of what Christ has done for you on the cross so that you see that that Jesus Christ is our trustworthy hope, that, that in Christ you are loved, in Christ you are forgiven, in Christ you are restored, in Christ you are strengthened, that Jesus Christ is our trustworthy hope. But that's not all he is. Keep looking at it. Let me show you something else we'll find in verse 18. Christ is our saving refuge. Our saving refuge. Let me show you the first part of verse 18. <clears throat> the preacher writes, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that's the promise and the oath, the two unchangeable things, it's impossible for God to lie, verse 18, we who have fled for refuge, Paul's right there. What has he said so far in verse 18? Based on the unassailable truth, based on the unassailable truthfulness of God, we who have fled for refuge. I like that that preacher didn't say you who have. I like that he said we. I like that he included himself. Look, brothers and sisters, you need to appropriate this for yourself, fleeing for refuge. That little phrase, we who have fled for refuge, that is uh, actually one word. Fled for refuge is three words in English, one word in Greek. It means to run away from danger and run toward safety. Let's see if I can illustrate it. <clears throat> Not too long ago, I went outside, pitch black, dark at night. It's probably 9 o'clock. I had forgotten something in the backyard, way in the back, close to where my shed is. When I went out there, I didn't have a flashlight. I go out there all the time, didn't need one. Didn't even have my phone. I did not know that our dog, Spurgeon, was in the backyard. So I'm walking in the backyard, and that dog sometimes like, likes to play. So that dog starts running at me. Now, I don't know that it's him. And that dog is so fat that he sounds like a charging rhino. <laughs> I didn't know what was coming at me. And when I heard that dog running at me, <clears throat> I turned around and fled <laughs> for refuge. Somewhere, I'm running away from danger. I'm running to somewhere safe. 
Now you take all of that understanding of what it means to flee from danger, run to something safe, come back here with me to verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, we who have fled for refuge from your guilt, sin, hurt, from the future you're worried about, from people, from the past you've been dragging this guilt around, Look, from the present, you don't know how to escape. From the, terrible, from the terrible pain you feel, you run in your soul. You should do it right. Run in your soul. You run to Christ. You run to the goodness of God. You run to the arms of forgiveness. You run to the strength that he gives you. At the, you run to the hope that is there. You run to the real love of God. Go to the wounds of Jesus and there receive your healing. At the wounds of Jesus, it's safe. We who have fled for refuge. Brother, don't run away from the refuge that is Christ. You run too. You come here in prayer and confession. You, you, you're a part of a congregation. Don't abandon your church. Sing. Look, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. I mean, when you look at verse 18, join me there again. Verse 18, the whole verse. The preacher says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Not just encouragement, strong encouragement. You stay in there. You get both hands and you hold on to the hope that is, verse 18, the end, this hope that is spread before us. The preacher has painted a picture of a banquet table that Christ has laid it out for you and welcomed you to come and feast at his banquet table. A beautiful offer. A beautiful offer of a better day. I love that verse, verse 18. Real hope. You see what it does? It gives strength to our weary souls. You see, Christ is our trustworthy hope, and Christ is our saving refuge. Let me give you a third thing to consider. Number three, Christ is our steady anchor. Our steady anchor. Only time in the entire Bible, the whole Bible, the only time that Jesus is ever referred to as an anchor. Right there in verse 19. And it's amazing how the early church took hold of this. The apostles, when they died, so the apostles go off the scene and all they have is the Bible now as the authority. The early church reading the Bible, they came up, uh, came up on this verse right here. And when they read it, the very first symbol of Christianity couple of symbols would be the fish, one would be a dove, and the other is an anchor. They're persecuted. You go to the, the Roman catacombs, and there you'll find all over the place anchors. See them in cemeteries. Even would put them on rings. I got a wedding ring on here. It's got a cross on it. If I were a first century Christian, I probably would have an anchor. Why did they do that? Well, it's right there in verse 19. Let me read it to you. We have this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place that is behind the curtain. Think of the analogy now. A ship's anchor is dropped into the water and descends deep into the seabed to anchor it down. Our anchor, which is Christ, has ascended far into heaven 
pass the holy place into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Look, this is what Jesus Christ has done for us by his perfect life, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection. He took the chain. He took the chain of our hearts that was anchored to sin and hell. That's where we were. We were slaves to sin. He broke the chain. We sing that, chains are gone. But he didn't just leave there. He broke the chain and he attached it to us, our chain. He attached it to himself so that we are in Christ and Christ is in us and at the resurrection. Well, after the resurrection, he appeared to hundreds. He then ascended. Look, he didn't just break our chains. He attached our chains to himself, the anchor, and at his ascension, Old Testament language here behind the curtain, when he ascended as the anchor into the veil, he's gone into the very presence of God and sunk the anchor deep into the presence of God so that all of your future, all of your tomorrows, all of your hope is anchored into the holy goodness of God in Christ. This is a stupendous victory. Let me tell you about an anchor now. It does two things primarily. What does an anchor do? <clears throat> anchor is good for storms. You need, need an anchor on a ship, there's a storm, drop the anchor, and it locks you in. Up on the surface, things go, it seems like they're chaotic. You get thrown around a good bit, tornado comes through, and it's complete chaos, but you're anchored. You're not going anywhere. An anchor is there to keep you firm in the storm. That's not all an anchor does. Sometimes that's where we put all the weight. Anchors, I'm going through a storm. Here people say you're either in a storm, out of storm, going into a storm. I don't know if that's true or not. I know this. I need an anchor if I'm in a storm, but I'm not always in a storm. Not always in a storm. I think an anchor is equally as important when the storm clouds go away and it's, it's a beautiful day out on the lake. You're in the boat and you drop the anchor down. That anchor is there, not because there's a terrible storm. That anchor is there because you imperceptibly start to drift. When things are going well, Everybody's smiling, shining, and happy, and bills are being paid. It's really easy to drift. And Christ is our anchor. He holds us there. Sometimes not even, he holds us close. We need an anchor that keeps us from, we need an anchor that keeps us firm in the storms. We need an anchor that keeps us from drifting in the calm. Christ is our anchor. Let me give you one last thing, and then we'll be done for the day. I want you to see that Christ is our forerunner, forerunner. Verse 19 and 20, Christ is our forerunner. I couldn't think of a better word. I'm not very creative, so forgive me. I couldn't think of a better word than what the preacher used right here in the Bible. Notice what he says in verse 19 and especially 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, keep going, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Paul's there. He's gone as a forerunner. Circle that word. It's the Greek word prodromos. So pro, just like, just like it sounds, prodromos. What does that word mean? It, 
It means either a soldier or a contingency of soldiers, a unit that has gone ahead of the, the other part of the brigade, gone ahead of the army, and they're recon uh, they are reconning the area, taking the route, finding out the direction, taking every step that the army is going to, to take to make sure that the route is clear and in good order, and then they come back to the brigade. And the entire army will go on that route. So, if that's what a prodromos is, Jesus, as our forerunner, has entered into the chamber, this is Old Testament language, behind the veil where the presence of God is, as a forerunner, and according to verse 20, he did that on our behalf. Now, that truth gives me two reasons to be confident. Number one, verse 20 tells us he is representing us in the presence of God his Father. That Jesus now in heaven interceding for us forgiveness based on his sacrificial death on the cross. That's one great confidence building truth. Here's the second one. As the forerunner, he's gone on before us. The implication is he's gone on before believers that you and I as believers will follow him into that privileged place of close communion with God. Now, I've been studying this all week. <clears throat> what I'm studying, uh, studying, I a lot of times will use a commentary by A.W. Pink. It's a big, thick commentary written 100 years ago. And it's hard to work through sometimes. But it's easier than the commentary he used. A.W. Pink used a commentary by a man that was a Puritan named John Owen. And he wrote all kinds of volumes on Hebrews. I've tried to read it, and it's really hard to get through. But John Owen said something great. A.W. Pink took it and boiled it down. So I'm going to take what A.W. Pink did and boil it down for you. This is what he said. As our forerunner, he is our forerunner in three ways. He is our forerunner by way of declaration. He is our forerunner by way of preparation. He is our forerunner by way of occupation. He is our forerunner by way of declaration. How? He declares victory. He has ascended on high. He has disarmed all of the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame at the cross. He has ascended and declared victory. He is our forerunner. By way of preparation, John 14, Jesus told his disciples, I am going ahead of you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And once I've prepared a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself so that where I am, you might be also. He's our forerunner preparing a place for us. He is our forerunner by way of occupation. What do I mean by that? The Apostle Peter knew that, and he wrote a little letter called 1 Peter. This is what he said in verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What a great hope we have in Christ. And that real hope gives strength to our weary souls.
I want you to cling to Christ because Christ is our trustworthy hope. I want you to cling to Christ because Christ is our saving refuge. I want you to cling to Christ, whether it's a storm or a clear day, because Christ is our steady anchor. I want you to cling to Christ because He is our forerunner who's gone before us and one day will come again to get us. Today, you can find your hope in Jesus. With your heads bowed this morning, won't you go with me just for a moment of prayer before we sing our last worship song. With your heads bowed this morning, I just want to ask a question to you. Have you centered your hope in Christ? If so, when we sing, you should sing with all of your heart. You should sing uh, at the top of your lungs to the Lord this last song, singing it as someone redeemed who's anchored in Christ. There's a good chance that you're here, and even as a, a Christian, a son or daughter of God, you, it's really been a tough couple of weeks, and you want somebody to pray with you. You'll see our pastors are sitting down in the front row. They're there to pray with you if you'd like someone to pray with you. If you want someone to pray for you, or maybe you, you do, if you just want to come and pray, that's fine as well. There may be some of you here, and I'm certain there are, that have heard the gospel your entire life, and yet today you finally... It, it resonated. It made sense to you. You want to talk further about what it means to put your faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We would welcome you to come forward and talk to one of our pastors. Or when church is over, the pastors are over out in the lobby. Very glad to talk to you about what it means for you to believe Jesus died and rose again for you. Christ, indeed our hope. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for church on a Sunday. Thank you for the chance to worship. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. By your spirit, I pray you would strengthen your people that we might live our lives for you. It's been a good day, Lord. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and we sing together.